The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. But I think the thing that blew my mind on a consistent basis was um, the Gina Hernandez episode. Uh The only thing that I really knew going into it was this rumor that, you know, maybe he was killed. Right, you're back. I'm back. We're all together again. Let me thank you for the feedback I've been getting. But I know how temperamental you are. I'm not taking it too much to heart. The minute one of these shows deals with something you're not happy with, you'll be gone. Oh, what? He's got Vince Russo on? Kidding me? Taking a pass on this one, Oliver. Can't listen to Vince. But for the most part, the things you're saying are wonderful, which is why you can now become a patron of the show. Of course, go to patreon.com slash kayfabe podcast. Yep. One simple tier, guys. You want to help support this podcast, keep these kind of things going, become a patron. Be happy to give you a shout out, uh, which I will be doing on these shows. You know, the this first sec I usually answer any tweets and stuff you that you guys have for me at the in the last segment. But um I wanted to cover one in particular. It was gonna be it was gonna be way too long. It was gonna be way too long for me to to cover um just on in that end uh segment. So uh I'm going to grab Jilly Bean Jab as the Twitter handle there. Uh, she said, your timeline with Piper is fascinating on so many levels. At times, Piper seems to be walking a fine line between performance, work, and truth shoot. Utterly captivating, though. As a diehard Piper Mark, can you give us more insight into that day and that shoot? Yeah, that was one of those things that y- you don't realize when you're in it that that this should be a mark out moment god i should have been marking out so much the inner god the inner mark in me the 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 kid the the 12 year old that dressed as piper for halloween with that original panther shirt i have the picture i'll tweet it out when this episode comes out so you'll see what the hell i'm talking about what what a, a abject douchebag i look like but you know what when I was sitting there with Piper, when I had Piper for the day, I should have marked out. I should have been so much less professional than I was. But you just, you do the work, you know? That's what this thing was, you know? I, when you get into this, and like, you know, the time I, I was a big Howard Stern fan my whole life, but when I got up to the Stern show with the Iron Sheik to plug the roast, I should have I should have been selfieing my ass off. Well, this is back in the Blackberry days. I don't know if people were selfieing, but oh my god, in the green room, Baba Booey, I should I should have been taking pictures with everybody. I did nothing. I delivered the chic like a, like a professional producer, and he got put on the air and plugged the show. And I happily sat back in the green room. Almost got on though. I'm going to tell that story soon when we have uh, Monique from Radio Gunk on. But I should have been marking out like a bitch. I was in the inner sanctum 
I was listening to the crosstalk, commenting on what was going on in the air from Gary's office where I was near, over to, to Richard Christie and and JD, and all kind of commenting out loud across the hallways to each other. Oh, I should have recorded it. No, I went professional. That's the thing, man. When you go pro, you go pro. Yeah, and you and you lose the fan a little bit. You gotta smother the fan a little bit. So the day we had Piper, um, we first met Piper outside. He was with his handler person. Uh, they were gonna run and grab a bite, and they were gonna meet up with us in a couple hours. And um, so we did our hellos and our, you know, I did my quick, you know, this is what we're gonna talk about, whatever. And he, and he shakes Anthony's hand. Now Anthony's a big guy, right? And he shakes his hand, and Piper looks at him and he says, "Where were you born? Not where are you from. Where are you? Where were you born?" So I don't, I mean, Anthony might have even told him the fucking hospital. I don't remember. And Piper was like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. I don't know if he was, it was an ethnic thing, but um, it was it was an odd moment. It was an odd moment. But Hot Rod, let me just tell you, Hot Rod was one of the most professional people I worked with. Uh, he asked for nothing. He wanted a big soda, a big Coke, just a big Coke. He kept down by his feet. Slammed it a few times during the during the show. You might have seen him uh, drinking it. It was like a Seven Eleven Coke or something he had. That was it. And we talked for God. It had to be three hours on camera, right? I mean, the the final show was probably two and a half hours or something like that. So we probably talked for three hours worth of raw footage, going over with intense detail. Because those are the shows I come to life on. There's oh do, if I if I have to talk about the fucking the raw draft on a timeline ever again I think I might commit suicide on the air, but when I go back to that time and I can ask Roddy about everything every bit of minutia about the Jimmy Snooker Piper's pit appearance or the Frankie Williams Piper's pit appearance ah it's when I'm on fire on fire. And I think Piper appreciated that because we were having discussion. We were, and I was crawling inside. I mean, I was a student of the, I was a student of the business, so I knew a little bit of the psychology that was going on. But I wanted to know so much more. And then there was that one point where Piper kind of like clears the chairs and he goes, "Stand up." I stood up, and he was trying to make a point about the unpredictability of something like Piper's Pit, right? Where you go on, you're going to talk. What's going to happen? Who knows? And he leans in. He looks in my eyes. He goes, you don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is where the magic is. Right here. And he was leaning in. And he had my eyes. And I knew. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what to do. But I knew for sure I wasn't going to be one of these fucking goofy marks that was going to laugh or mock the moment. Piper was going deep, and I was going to go with him. And I didn't know what to do, so I just locked onto his eyes, and I didn't blink. The old Michael Caine acting technique, right? You pick an eye, and you don't blink because it shows weakness for the close-up. So I picked an eye, and I looked into it, and I didn't blink. I didn't go back. I didn't step backwards. I didn't sway. I didn't do anything. 
I locked myself down. I froze. I picked an eye, and I stared into it. Almost daring him. How far can you take it, Roddy? You're right. This is unpredictable, Roddy. But so am I. Should I be doing something? Do you think I should be doing something, Roddy? Ah, oh, that was such a great moment to have to to be on a Piper's pit almost, and to stand my ground. It was so great. Roddy was great. Listen, the, the half work, the half shoot thing. You never know when Roddy's shooting, when Roddy's working. I believe this though about Roddy Piper. I believe he believes everything he's saying is as he remembers it. I know he's got that thing. I know that, you know, the the lines are blurred a little. I, I had to, I think I even pushed him a little on the coconut. I'm like, the coconut wasn't gimmicked? He said, no, 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 no. So I, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> Piper gave me on that show. Yeah, I don't care what anybody says. Any other shoot interview hosts, WWE, whoever you are. I got more Roddy Piper in those two and a half hours than any motherfucker's ever going to get. And it's too late now. It's too late now to go back. But I know he gave as much as he was ever going to give that day to me. Now, listen, there was that whole thing, that whole Pat Patterson thing. I don't want to go through that either. Who knows? Who knows what happened? He alluded to some things, some things. He mentioned knee pads. I didn't. He did. I was fucking sitting there going, okay, what are you talking about, Roddy? But that's the thing that got all the attention. I just wish people would sit and watch that thing and realize that Roddy gave more of himself in that interview than he was ever going to give. He drew the curtain back. Even at one time said, oh, it's hard for me to even say it. He was talking about bleeding, right? Or, or selling something. He's like, I'm going to bleed for you. He's like, ah, oh, it's hard to even say it. It was hard for these guys to even say it. Especially someone like him, man. He was, he was of a time where it almost didn't matter what he did in the ring. You bought the ticket because he was going to be in the ring. Because of what he said on the microphone this past week on TV. But it almost didn't matter that the ring skills were almost non-existent. This brawling wasn't, you know, it wasn't the ballet that we were watching guys like Steamboat and Snooker. Visually impressive, which is all it is now, obviously, right? And it's just, that's it now. But it was the mic. It was the mic doing it. It was the most it was the most pure form of what made professional wrestling interesting to me. It wasn't the charade in the ring, it was the masquerade outside the ring. And a guy who so desperately believed when he looked into the camera to close out a segment who told you just when they think they've got the answers, I change the questions. Remember that one? That was incredible. I was Piper for Halloween. Listen, I was Piper for Halloween. My seventh grade class, we were going to do a Piper's Pit. So Cesar Amaro, a football star of the school, said, well, I'm going to come just as a football player. I said, no, you got to be George Wells. 
George Wells wear the football pants where they, he was he was black. I said so so just wear a brown sweater and you'll look like George Wells and we're going to do a Piper's Pit. And we did it. I was be, he was I was beating I was whipping him. What the fuck was wrong with us? It had I guess beating each other up is fun for for boys, but it was the 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 challenge and squaring off with Caesar for a Piper's Pit segment that I got to talk. And I would and the assault would come after the verbiage. I had a mouth like him. When I met him, I showed him that picture of me in Halloween. I said, Rod, I said, the problem is I had your fucking mouth too. I said that to someone else also. Bobby the Brain Heenan. I said, Bobby, I got a lot of teachers that would like to talk to you because I sounded a lot like you when I was a kid. Bobby, swear to God, bless his soul, turns to me, he goes, Did you ever get thrown out? I said, No. He said, Then you weren't any good. If you like listening to podcasts, you probably like audiobooks. Listen, this is the audiobook revolution now. People love to hear the stories read to them, often by the authors. I always try to get ones that have the authors. And it's no different if you want to listen to my audiobooks. My audiobooks have four audiobooks out. Kayfabe Stories You're Not Supposed to Hear from Professional Wrestling Production Company Owner. The Business of Kayfabe to go inside the company I ran for... 12 years, still running, I guess. Uh, Father's Blood, which is a look at uh, parents, fathers in wrestling who had to work the road simultaneous to being a parent. And also Sophie's Journal, my first novel, a psychological thriller. Audible.com, the perfect place to go for all of these. Uh, You get a free book with a 30-day trial. Make them mine. Make your free trial book one of mine. I will convince you to go further. If not, if you don't like uh, Audible, prefer iTunes, iBooks as it's now known, all my work is there. The audiobook revolution is here. Check out Sean Oliver's audiobooks at audible.com, at iTunes, at iBooks. Let me tell you a story. Brody was first, and it was like, here's this really, you know, incredible story that has all the, the elements of a great story, you know, has all the elements you'd ever want. And then it was like, what would the other ones be? And then like a separate meeting, I'd like the big meeting I had with like all the network executives was pitching like this as a 10 part series. And here's 10 stories that we felt really could be great on television and really could kind of look at the wrestling world in a different way, give it a different treatment. And also like, it's a mixture of true crime stories. It's a mixture of character pieces and just controversial stories and just looking at wrestling in a different way, not like an expose, but living it through the people that the story is affected or the family members is affected. And then it was like going into a room. And I just remember pitching all these crazy stories one after the other. Um, and uh, it just seemed like it was landing, like it was landing in the room because a lot of these people don't know shit about wrestling. Yeah. Nobody did. People remember some of the guys, like they remember some of the wrestlers from when they were kids, maybe. But when you started going into all the nitty gritty on these stories, it's like, wow. You know, and some of them, 
some of them we didn't get around to doing for season one because things always change. And now we're looking at most of those for season two. But like, you know, that was kind of just it. Just like, wow, these are really great stories. Then the next step was they gave us, um, you know, some cash to do the pilot. So then it was like, all right, pilot this. Go and see if if you think, you know, like, you know, and then that was a struggle. Which was Uh, the pilot. Brody was the pilot, right? Correct. That was the first thing we did in 2017. Yeah. And uh, that was just, you know, uh, on a on a pilot budget, we had to go out and, you know, do these interviews uh, with everybody. And then, you know, the big thing we wanted to do with the series is knowing that, you know, archival, you know, could be limited, uh, especially just knowing the amount of money we had for it at the time. <laughs> and just like we need to supplement the story in other ways to show the things that there aren't archival for. We need to put people in that locker room. We need to put people on that story. How do we do that? And that's where, like, the thin blue line influence came in, where let's do reenactments in, like, a trippy, kind of nightmarish way uh, and kind of try and bring a different visualization to the show. And that's how we kind of came up with that. And then we shot those in the studio and just put it all together. And, and, and there was that was it. I remember we specifically talked about the reenactment element. Are you a film, ske- film school geek, too? Or, or... I'm a film school geek dropout, but yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> you, 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 good. That's clearly the recipe for success. Um, but, you know, I remember us talking specifically. I don't know if we brought up Errol Morris or, or, or specifically, but we did talk about our hatred for most reenactments of crime-type crime shows and yeah. how, like, how has no one tried to do something a little more filmic you know, it doesn't have to be so fucking literal to what we're hearing in the talking heads. And I, I actually specifically remembered that being like the the mm. best part of our discussion. And I kind of left going like, ooh, okay, it, maybe it's in good hands. Because, you know, you hear like, because you yeah. were asking me for suggestions for storylines, for, for things to cover. I love your suggestions, by the way. And um, we'll talk about my favorite one in a minute. But... Uh, <laughs> The the thing that you always worry about is like, you know, the handling of it. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it, it's it's so. You know, I was I was uh, I was relieved to hear um, your impressions on that. Though I think the one thing I said, which you might have had to do this for business reasons, was like stay away from like the Montreal stuff and just. Like um, now, was that done to to kind of to to draw in somebody who's a more casual wrestling fan? Who hey, I remember that match, because like the wrestling people might have skipped that that episode. Yeah, so that that's interesting for sure uh, about the Montreal uh, episode. It, it basically, what what the the original plans for the series was to do ten episodes in season one, and so I'm looking at this and trying to be like maybe overthinking it probably did because i do all the time but i was thinking like you know we're, we need to engineer this uh, this show for a non-wrestling audience like we just have to you know uh in order because we're on tv and everything you know um so i we were trying to check the box because like the, like to go to loop it to the brody story it's like the brody story is interesting for a multitude of reasons but like thematically it it, it deals with like the blurred lines of you know, reality mixing in the wrestling world. Like, especially when you talk about the trial of, of Jose Gonzalez and how yeah. know, Brody is portrayed as, you know, his character and not Frank Goodish, right? And it's just those blurred lines are so bizarre. 
So I was looking at this of like, what stories can we tell that check those boxes of blurred lines? And obviously the screw job is one that's been told before. However, I do think it's a really good tool. It's an entry point tool for a lot of fans, non-fans, to see how the backstage world works. Because then you understand, you know, how champions are made, what it means to be a champion, and just how, how would all the politics kind of work. And, you know, when we got, when we got, uh, when, our, when our season plans changed and we got to only do six, it was like, man, if someone told me I get to do six episodes, would I have done the Montreal Screwjob? I don't know. Maybe not. Right. It kind of made sense more in like a ten thing. You know what I'm saying? Was, was the Moolah thing a, a demographic choice or? Um, no. I, well, I mean, it, it was always interesting to us because it was like, it was like, it was happening kind of at the time. Oh, sorry. It was, it was happening at the time. Like it was, it was, um, uh, the WrestleMania event was happening. The fabulous Moolah Battle Royale scandal, whatever you want to call it, was happening really when we were in pre-production. And it was like this idea of like, you know, here's the Me Too movement coming out and everything. And it was like, man, this could be an interesting perspective to kind of like tell a story about a, a, a female holding back other females and legacies becoming re-examined. It was kind of just had ingredients of a very, you know, also blurred lines between her character and who she is. I think her legacy and reputation is a mixture hodgepodge of that too and so it was kind of like just seemed like it checked the boxes for us at the time and um you know then we looked into the sweet georgia brown story and we were just like man this is all the elements here right so yeah the um i want to ask you about the production process here because you've got you've got six stories right that cover disparate time frames all over the place, basically. How do you attack this when you are putting together a production schedule on limited on limited monies? Yeah, man. Yeah, it's it's definitely the most challenging part of the sh- of the production. In that, you know, Vice historically has never really ever made a show that um, you know is the formal documentary portion mixed with sort of a, a like a drama recreation, whatever you want to call it, portion. And so the process of making the show is like on the front end, you have to go out and travel around to where all these people live and you have to shoot all these interviews. And most of the times we're shooting two to three episodes at once. So like you have to have that kind of capacity to like, you know, be in Gina Hernandez and Devon Eriks and Lula kind of at the same time or whatever. And you go out and you travel all over the place and you shoot all these interviews and you get everybody on board too. You have to get the access and get people on board and get them to trust you, especially those who, you know, have lost family members and may think, you know, that you're exploiting them because you're you're a TV producer and you have all those stereotypes and things to kind of wade through. But then after that kind of comes together and you wind up getting it all on camera and you wind up uh, shooting it, then it kind of becomes about getting your your like rough cut together getting all the interviews on the timeline and really just getting into the story and then kind of piecing together like a reenactment script and trying to figure that out then the challenge of 
hiring people that look like these people to, yeah. to, to do it. So from the from the scheduling the travel standpoint, I just want to be clear. Do you remember that show on PBS called Connections? It was um, it was by uh, the host I no. think, James Burke I think was the host's name, and they oh. would just take a like a sixty minute thing around. They'll start with something like like um, a coral a coral reef. He'll start with something about coral reef, and then it'll connect to Mesopotamia. And he's in Mesopotamia saying, "Yes, and the sandstone here is blah blah." And they talk about sandstone for twenty minutes, and then which actually started in Sweden. And then he's in fucking Sweden. He came to talk to my college once, and I, the girl I, I was dating at the time, her father used to watch this all the time. And the thing I couldn't believe as a film school geek was, this is PBS. And he's flying all over the globe for this thing about sandstone. So, <laughs> and so I said, I said to him, "How the hell do you travel?" He said, "Well, he said we write all ten episodes." He's like, "And then we shoot seven scenes in Mesopotamia." He said, "So we're actually only traveling, you know, eight times all year, but we're doing everything in neighboring cities and countries Ooh. in one shot." So that's what you're talking about. You figured out when we've got to be in Texas to cover. The Von Erics, and can we grab someone else down here? And that this time around, we're much better about that in terms of being more travel efficient. Last season, it was it was it made it was illogical in terms of we just had to go go go. So sometimes we would be in Los Angeles, we had to go to Florida, then we had to go to Hawaii, and it would literally just be like bouncing oh, all around and and just getting it because the main reason for that is um, you know. We're, we're borderline, you know, we we are kind of perfectionists and we want, we like the idea of shooting interviews with most of our subjects in their own environments and in the places they live and, and try and get their surroundings, you know, because it adds something to it. Like when you see Abdul the Butcher in his house, it just adds something to it, you know? So it's like the authenticity to travel around, it's like it, it makes it harder for us. Where we probably could just get people to come to us more often, you know? Um, but anyway, you're like beholden to this editing schedule. It all comes down to the, edit, the editing and the delivery schedule. So it's kind of like you just have to get all these interviews in as quickly as you possibly can to give yourself the most time for editors to turn these episodes over so we can get to the point of creating a reenactment script. So literally, there wasn't much rhyme or reason other than we just got to fly around the country as many times as we can in a row and it's literally shoot travel shoot travel shoot travel mm -hmm. day after day after day and sometimes it'll be 20 days in a row and you just got to do it you know and it's, yeah. it's tough <laughs> and many times it, it it you probably considered throwing in the towel i just just with who was the biggest pain in the ass which which of these people you had oh. to talk to could it have been abby was it abby okay so 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 um maybe Maybe, um, you know, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, showing up at, at, at Abdullah's house was, was awesome. I mean, we're fans and, you know, it was just like, we, we knew we were going to capture some amazing stuff there, but he, he definitely worked us, you know, it was tough to like schedule something with him and yeah. like, you know, the, the logistics behind it. Oh, and yeah. it definitely worked me, you know, cause I'm sure you've heard all the stories about him you know, working you for extra cash. Yeah, I was going to say, you went like back that. into your wallet a couple of times for Abby, no doubt, right? But I knew that going in. <laughs> I did my homework. So we had we had the Abdullah hustle hustle money byline in the budget. A little bit, you know, and I knew I had it. So there was actually an instance where 
Evan, you want, Evan, if you, if, you, if, you, if you want me to describe the blood, that's an extra $50, baby. <laughs> if you want me to tell the story, it's pretty funny. But basically, I was a little nervous about going down there because you've heard stories about, and you hear stories about people that we interview all the time, especially some of the people we're interviewing now. You hear stories and stuff. And and uh, I, I, it was like I, I knew I needed the hustle money budget aside. I, I knew I needed that. But then it was also like once we got there, we wanted to break the ice with him, so I wanted to take him out to a restaurant just to kind of figure out what we were going to get, you know, because I wanted to make sure we were going to get enough out of him. Yeah. So I was like, any restaurant you want to go to, man, whatever you want. I was hoping they would be the most legit Atlanta barbecue place in the world is what I was think- picturing in my mind. And no, it was like, you know, Red Lobster, you know, is where he wanted to go. Wow. You know, <laughs> filling, <laughs> filling the stereotype in several ways. Yeah. Um. So. So. Okay. So he's he's doing the Abbey thing. Who Who else? Let me ask you this. Any of these six shows? Did you at any point say this one's not going to get fucking made? That that we just can't. This is not coming together. Thankfully, not. Okay. Um. I mean, there were times, you know, um, I I shouldn't name specifics because we might still do it, but there's definitely been times where. We tried to get an episode off the ground, especially last year, and like the access didn't come together. Like we just couldn't get enough of the right inside people to talk about it, and so it's like, well, then it's not worth doing. So you abandoned the idea or put it on the shelf altogether. Yeah. Is that what happened to my Herb Abrams request? Uh, <laughs> For God's sakes, how is this not a story? I'm watching the Montreal Screwjob again. Oh, did you know, you know, he rang the bell. But you've got Herb Abrams, a booker for UWF for two years, goes from that to being voted the worst announcer by the Wrestling Observer to being found dead naked after having smashed his office apart with a baseball bat in the company of hookers while covered in Vaseline. And this isn't covered by Vice. I don't understand this. <laughs> Definitely. We're both producers here. You, 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 sm- <laughs> you smell gold. Do you not when you hear that? I do. I did. I did ever since. I did ever since. The I reenactment mean, alone. You could play him. I, I, could play. I know. I've seen some of the videos of him. Like someone posted a video of him the other day of like him like trashing some like like uh, interview area with the tables and everything. And it was pretty amazing. I'm still open to it. Hey, we we still got other slots to fill here. So I'm, all right. I'm so not, maybe a season uh, three. I'm not, I'm not naysaying. Season three, maybe. I guess it's not on the on in the cards for season two, but maybe season three. You got to save some. You got to save some because you know you don't want to be running out of these. You know. How about the story of a, of a shoot interview company who comes along, revolutionizes an industry uh, crippled by paralysis and no ideas. So you walk in with, with half an idea and you're credited with having changed the entire industry. And then people go, you know what? Hold on. We don't want to pay for content anymore. Yeah. Netflix yeah. has changed the entire game. How the hell, while we're on this, does Vice make fucking money? Good question. Um, you know, lots of different ways, you know, I mean, to doing branded content, to advertising, to, you know, God knows what, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But how uh, much? You, I mean, I can't, I would love to get into the business specifics of, well, of, of Vice. It, I don't know how much access you have to their, to their records, mm-hmm. but I'd love to know this. I mean, I'm not as I'm, I'm definitely was never on that side of the business, and I'm not just dodging. But 
like definitely like um you know there there a lot of financing comes into the company a lot of money like basically they prove themselves as you know, here's an audience we have, here's a platform we've built organically on YouTube. And then it's just like, you know, brands come in, pay lots of money to be associated with that. And then, you know, advertisers pay money to be associated with that. And then other companies inject financing to create more content. On yeah, but somebody needs to make it back, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, you know, there's been a lot of investments in the company. Some things have worked, some things have not worked. And, you know, it's... Well, I mean, they have they have offices. They have over. I mean, they're not meeting at the diner, right? Vice has offices. I started at the company when I started at the company in 2013, 14. Um, there was about 315 people in the New York office, and then about two years later, um, there was about 1,300 people in that same office. Yeah, and I, that happened. And my first Christmas party, they gave away a million dollars in cash to everybody for holiday. Oh course. my so, god. I show up at the holiday party, and then the head of the company is like, all right, bonuses for everybody. And they wheeled out a million dollars in cash, which I've never seen before in my entire life, on a table. And then they gave pieces of it away to all the employees. And that was, I guess, the CEO's poker earnings at the time or something. Wow. So, um, I mean, you guys are being sent all over the place. How long is the shooting schedule for, for a season? Season one took how long? Shooting, not editing. Shooting, not editing. It's tough to say because it's all happening kind of at the okay. same time. But but you're on the road. For, you're on the road for how long? Um, on it's on and off. It's on and off. It's on and off. But basically, like, if I had to do some quick math here, last season, I mean, collectively, probably several months for for on and off for four months, maybe maybe four and a half months. What size crew? I'm just trying to put this together in my head. It yeah, got to a point where I had to consi- consider whether I could pay Nash for for a forty five minute interview, and I'm putting trying to put this together for you now. How many people are flying all over the globe here? Last year, thankfully, it's changed this year for the better. But last year, we only traveled myself, uh, Jason Eisner, who's my partner, who's also co director, director, and our director of photography, camera person, and then we hired local sound and. We got so many local sound weirdos that it was like, okay, we need to do something about that. So what we decided to do is for season two, we, um, we were able to finally afford and get a dedicated sound person. So we travel four people, and it's just four of us, and we do it all. D- define sound weirdo, please. <sighs> man. We had it. We just, you know, we just, man. You know, sound, sound <laughs> people are a unique bunch. We had a we had a dude show up and he wasn't uh, let's just say that he wasn't altogether uh, sober maybe I don't know we were in a weird town and he was okay. booked and he showed up and we were doing a Scott Hall interview and the guy was just oh, it was wild man I don't even know how to describe it and Scott was like look at this kid and he was like <laughs> man someone's coming down <laughs> and he was like I'll I'll take half of whatever he had <laughs> and I was like. That's so tremendous. Like, man, we need to we need to we need to choose our people. You know, have our own our own team. You know, your partner is uh, Jason Eisner. You mentioned, right? Yeah. Uh, relation to Michael? No. Oh, that's a shame. Michael. Yeah, My- no. Michael Eisner. That'd be a shame. No, no, no. Jason, Jason, and I met man over ten years ago. He's a filmmaker. He directed a movie called Hobo with a Shotgun. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, it's a Rudger Hauer action picture that 
uh, is totally insane. And we met kind of around the time he was getting that going at Sundance. Mm-hmm. And we both just like got way back into wrestling together and just got obsessed again. We still are, obviously. And, and we decided we really wanted to see this happen somehow, somewhere. The, uh, the season one stuff, is there anything that you covered that... Um that shocked you? I mean, you knew the stories probably from a, like a enough to pitch them, but when you actually went out there and talked to the family members and stuff, what, what like blew you away? I think the thing that, um, the, man, well, a lot of things, but I think the thing that blew my mind on a consistent basis was, um, the Gino Hernandez episode. Uh-huh. Um, because, it was like the, sto- like the story that I always wanted to tell because it was a deeper cut, relatively speaking, and it hadn't really been picked apart. And um, the only thing that I really knew going into it was this rumor that, you know, maybe he was killed, right? And so is it enough for an episode? I don't know. It's kind of a leap of faith on, on all of our parts where it was like – and a lot of people said, are you sure? Are you sure? Because it could just wind up that there's nothing interesting that you find. And then it really wasn't until we got his family on the phone, which, which took a long time to get them to call us back. Um, and, 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 of course, we later learned that's because they were in fear for their lives. And, and, and then it was when we finally spoke to his mother, and his mother was like, you know, I've been living in fear for the past 30 years. I've stared my son's killer in the eyes. I know who he is. I know where he lives. And then it was like, holy shit. And then it was like, we need to get on the plane, get down there. And that's what I did, because at first they didn't want to talk. They didn't want to, you know, because of, of that fear issue. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes what we have to do, which, which is more, one of my favorite parts of the process, is we actually, on top, I didn't mention this earlier, on top of filming these, these interviews, we actually sometimes go out there with no cameras. And in the instance of the Gino thing, we went out there with no cameras, and we actually just spent human time with these people uh, to just kind of get their story and uh, to, to, to hear who, to hear where where we're coming from, and just to be you know put a real face to this whole thing. So you you actually you flew down with, with no intention mm-hmm. to shoot. See, if yeah. I was Vice, I would have pulled your money right away because they here talk about it's difficult to make the return, and here you guys are fucking around with Gino's mother, and there's no cameras, and I'm flying you down there. Listen, you guys addressed the rumor the uh, the rumor that he was actually the child of. Yeah, of Paul Bosch. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, I was surprised you went there when I, when I watched it. Because you don't need to know that to tell the Gino Hernandez story. Did and you it, see the little bonus thing we did about it? No. Oh, okay. So we, so we did a little bonus thing on it. Um, and it was in there. It was in the episode for the longest time. And here's part of the process of, of production that's the hard, one of the hardest parts. When you get to the end of the road and you're cutting these episodes of time for television and you have to cut them to all the commercial breaks and then you have to make those difficult choices of like oh my god i gotta cut this thing and i don't want to and that was one of the yeah. more difficult things that i had to cut and the reason i did is because she which you'll see i can send you a link to it but or so you can post it or whatever but she Right off the bat, was just like, oh no, 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 no. You well, maybe know? I did see that then, because where else would I have seen them? Did you cover oh, that maybe. in the regular show? No, it, it, it wasn't in the show we released. Oh, it was okay. Like a little I saw that then. Online. Then I did see that. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. And so it was. It was basically just like 
you know, well, here's the rumor. It was kind of, it, it just would have been a real nod to the diehards, and it didn't really. But there is a great story along with that in that, you know, his real father, you know, whoever the schmuck his real father was, you know, is, is more of an interesting story than the rumor that it was Paul. But, you know, you have to make those kind of difficult choices. Right. Um, so what else surprised you? Anything, uh, anything going well, into any of those? Uh, a couple things just off the top of my head. Uh, you know, I, obviously we both know Jim Cornette very well. Um, it definitely surprised me. I did not know that he was going to uh, talk about in the Screwjob episode that thing he's never talked about before. I did not know that we were going to get that when we showed up. Um, and it was kind of a thing he was deciding whether or not he was going to tell right before we turned on the camera. And I was like, you know, because for those who don't know, he basically goes in to talk about how he put together the spot, you know. And a lot of people take credit for it, whatever, you know, da, da, da. Yeah, but I've talked kind of, to some people, too, who might have Yeah, I know, we've all talked to people. But he, he mentions the idea of the sharpshooter spot, and, you know, he has, says it with such sincerity. And he really, like, called Dave Meltzer the day before and was like, should I, should I tell the story? Should I finally do it? You know, and so I didn't know I was getting mad, so that was really cool. Um... The is there any part of you that thinks that's a work? I, 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 I said, is there any part of you that thinks Montreal's a work? Oh, I want to believe that it is, but no. No, I mean, the only, it's just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. No, no, the, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to Brad. I've, I've talked to everybody, and people have sworn up and down that they've been from Bruce Pritchard, who, again, said he put that whole thing together and engineered it with Vince. and, um, But... It, I never lost my fans' perspective because I wasn't in any in the business in any way when I saw it. But I was a film school geek. Mm -hmm. So when they rang mm -hmm. the bell, the camera cut immediately, not to the new champion, but to Brett's face, a close-up of Brett. And I said to my friends, I said, why are they showing Brett? Mm. What the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? He just got screwed. I said, there's a director that called for that shot. Mm. So how the hell could this not be a, a perfectly crafted and and everything worked out? Evan, how else would you do this? A guy says he doesn't want to give the belt back. The promoter needs the damn belt back. We're one night away from him going to WCW TV. How can you do it where Brett can walk out with his with his honor unless to say, okay, me and you know about this and I'll give you a shot and you can destroy my set down on the floor and then go make your money. And I'm going to be the most hated man in the business. And I got some plans to run with that. I, okay. Obviously that would be like, it's like, I almost want to make like the, you know, sharpshooter image with the, I want to believe like X-Files, you know, yeah. like shirt. But the thing is, is like, <clears throat> that is, that would be amazing if that were true because it's, but I, I have a hard time thinking that, it would just be that well thought out and that perfect. Um, uh, and to see that far ahead, um, you know, I mean, but it, it, but obviously it worked out that way. I just think it's one of those kind of organic, happy accident things because knowing Brett uh, from the interview and at least in my experience, my judgment, my being there, hearing him talk for nearly six hours about it, <laughs> You know, um, I just, I don't know. Maybe maybe some things are best just to work them to the grave. But Well, you believe. I, yeah, that's okay. You believe. Listen, you know, but I... Art Bell you know, made a career yeah. out of it. 
No, I know, but it's just like I I I sense such a tangible bitterness um, that uh, yeah, I just I just don't detect. Anything well, there is that. there is he reneged on a contract. Plus, Brett's very smart. He's a promoter's son, and he's really business savvy. Vince walks out unexpectedly, stands at ringside, and then Brett allows himself to be put in a sharpshooter even for two seconds. No, I know. Now you're making me... Yeah, I know. <laughs> Come um, on, season three! Season three! Back to Montreal. <laughs> Finally, you're going you're gonna to make some money by breaking the case. Yeah, well, you know... You know, like... I think Brett thinks that we think it's a work. You know? I don't think that way. I mean, Scott, you know, Scott Hall does from the episode, right? Um, which I thought was just fascinating, you know, and I don't really know what to think of that. You know what I mean? Like when I heard that, I was kind of like, 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 what do you think about that when like he thinks that it's a word? Well, I've talked to, I brought it up to, uh, to Waltman, to X-Pac. I said to him on camera, I said, listen, if there's an ounce of friendship between me, you'll be honest right now. Montreal work. And he just said to me, good question. And went on to say, here's the reasons why it could be. Here's the reasons why it couldn't be. Nobody will commit, and and I understand. But God love them. If it is, then it's the only secret that's been kept in wrestling for however many years it's been now, 20 years. And and God bless them for it. Yeah, I just, yeah, I like I said, I it would be amazing if that were true. I just think so many things would have to go right. And so many... I don't know. It just seems very uncharacteristic of Brett a little bit, but, you know. Um, anyway, I digress. So, so where I know you're in the midst of production, you cannot tell us much other than you're not doing Herb Abrams again for some reason. That is an unconfirmed. But, an unconfirmed fact. <laughs> but can you give us a nugget? Can you give us anything? Well, I mean, like, obviously, I'm, 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 I'm holding some things... Uh, back just just until you know we know that they're happening for sure because you don't want to you don't want to you know disrupt anything before you know it's confirmed. Um, but basically, like you know, w- what we started on doing, which I can say, what we started on doing immediately once we got greenlit for season two, which happened very quickly, um, and it's you know no thanks for the support of everyone who watched it and chimed in, and liked it, and was awesome, um, is. You know, we were supposed to do Dino Bravo last year. That was one of the first original ten. And we actually shot a lot of that episode last year. And we thought that, man, this could have just been on the shelf permanently, you know, um, which, was, which, was, which was a sadness for us because it was such a, an amazing story. And so now... Why did you shelve it? Well, it wasn't... It was basically kind of a, a network decision. You know, a network make, made a decision to go from 10 to 6. Oh, You okay. know, and, and it was just like, you know, it was right in the middle while we were shooting not only just the Dino, but also Brawl for All, which we can talk about in a second. But, you know, Dino, uh, you know, because we had talked to the family and, you know, we'd interviewed the family and then, you know, to have it not come out would have just been... Ooh, I don't know if I would have been able to live with that. Um, and so now that we're coming back around again with season two... The first thing we did was, you know, get right back on finishing Dino, which has been great. Um, we're actually shooting the reenactments for that episode starting tomorrow. So uh, that's kind of interesting. And then uh, the Brawl for All, which is the other episode that 
we had kind of kept in our back pocket, which might not be an obvious one, but um, we wanted something a little lighter, more fun, more more comedic, if you will, but also having you know consequences and 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 and, and interesting character trajectories. Um, and uh, and so that one we started last year, and now we have a chance that we've actually finished it. So. Is there is there darkness to the to to the uh, to the brawl for all? It's the dark side of the <laughs> ring for Christ. Yeah. Other than Ahmed Johnson, uh, well, what's the darkness that we're, that's going on here? <clears throat> I think that the darkness with the brawl for all is, you know, obviously the consequences of an idea like that, right? There's obviously the consequences of the of an idea of this kind of uncharted territories of going on a shoot for a shoot fight tournament with guys who have no idea how to participate in a street fight tournament, you know? And um, uh, th- that's one aspect of it. But I also think there's kind of a, a sleeper story there with Bart Gunn, you know? And Bart Gunn's trajectory within the company, uh, going in and out of that, is, is just a, is a, is a cool human story, you know? Um, and so that, and it's an underdog story, but it's also kind of, it's, it's, it's a very interesting story, you know? And so, that's kind of the way that we're approaching it is, again, the blurred lines of what happens when you put a shoot fight on a worked card, you know, and, um, and the consequences of that, because there are several with a lot of career, careers, that were, careers that were ended in that, in that whole fiasco. And also just kind of the episode will explore the purity, I think, of wrestling and the sacredness of wrestling and why that's important all right, Evan. Uh, where, when can we expect season two? Where can we grab season one if we missed it? So season two right now, I don't have any firm dates, and that is a shoot. I wish I did. Um, I, I, for right now, I've heard that it's going to be early next year, so it shouldn't be too long, too long, but definitely going to be into the first part of 2020. We need some time to do this. Uh, <laughs> And so we're, we're, we are working away diligently every hour, every second. Um, and then uh, season one, if you missed it, I think some folks can get it on, on demand through Viceland on the cable providers, but also iTunes, uh, Amazon Instant. You can, I know you can, you can get on the, on the, on the, on the VOD there. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the major, maybe YouTube and some other places. But, okay. yeah, check it out. All right. Now, listen, when you, when you go down there for season two, bring the fucking cameras. Don't do this shit you did with Gino's mom. Bring the cameras. No, we will, we eventually bring the cameras. Oh, for God's sakes, wasting money. <laughs> Evan Husney, good guy. Good guy. You know what? And you can tell when the material's handled the right way that somebody's a fan of the business, you know? So often when any of these news agencies look to cover wrestling and it's if it's not just the stupid like wink wink here's the sport for morons it's uh it's this this was done well the 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 dark side of the ring series evan called me about it as as we as we talked about and i i gave him so much of my my thought process on how these things should be done with realistic filmic suggested recreations i i really hate reenactments you know just just some accent stuff film some accent stuff just to pepper in around the footage and 
you know, we talked for a while about some of the stuff that I thought would be would be good, and yeah, it's no joke. I was pushing that, to, <laughs> I was pushing the Herb Abrams thing, and um, yeah, and I guess they took it and ran with it. I I I looked for my associate producer credit. I didn't see it. But uh, I guess I guess like Gene Simmons told me, right? Uh, that's just an idea. Anyone can have an idea. You know, I want to build the biggest building in the world, the Kiss Building. Okay, can you do it? Right. So I just had the idea. He went around with the cameras and shot it. So to he goes the glory. I did want to tell you that uh, there's some there's some AMAs on Twitter here for me. So I want to get to them uh tommy giuliano says who are some people who you never got to interview only because of the fact that they outright rejected the offer not because of negotiations just said no to the shoot uh mick foley was somebody i could never get to do anything um always had these vague like you know not interested i'll pass kind of things like so i i mean i guess that's the downside of becoming the you shoot guy right i mean we have a series timeline which treats the the federations that the, the timeline series covers WWE, WCW and ECW treats them seriously and pays homage to them and is historic as historically accurate as we can research. But you know, you, you get known for singing one song and I guess my song is called how big is Batista's dick. So, you know, I, I guess People hear my name or hear kayfabe commentaries or they're like, oh, oh no. And that's why it's one thing that always pissed me off about Eric. I said, I, don't tell them, do you want to do a shoot interview when you're going to call one of your super agent Eric Sims? He may make his way onto the air here. I, I haven't decided yet. I mean, if he hears this, my phone's just going to blow up at this point. So probably shouldn't have even said it. But so I used to tell him, don't say shoot interview. It's not a shoot interview. We, we, we cover shoot-style material with production company. Just tell them you want to do a show for kayfabe commentaries. We're beyond description. We're beyond description. So, you know, but, you know, we, we fall into that. We fall into that bucket. We fall into that, that shoot interview bucket. So I, th- I think people like Mick, you know, just they couldn't do it. Uh, who else just said No. Not many people usually came came down to some back and forth with the money, unless they were tied up somewhere and committed contractually to not be able to to do video. So I talked to Ricky Steamboat one time. He was doing something for WWE at the time. I think agenting, I think. And um, I just said, "Listen, I you know I know we can't do anything now, but I'd like you to keep your keep your mind open to something like this." and he said, as, as rightfully, rightfully so, he said, if the money's right, sure. So, I don't think we ever came down to talking about it. Oh, um, we did. I did make him an offer to do, made him an offer to do one of the super cards, I think. We were going to do uh, a WCW-centric uh, super card. And um, he was, I think he was done agenting, and he, the word that came back was he didn't want to, he didn't want to piss off WWE and do our show. Fear. The living in fear of the shadow of WWE. Not even bound by a contract. Stuff used to get me fucking crazy. Are they paying you? Shit. God damn. Gonna go for more here. What do we got here? Uh, question from... 
Dan Young. Why is Joey Styles such a dick? Um, he wasn't a dick. He came in the room one time. We were shooting a show, and he came into the room to say hi to whoever our guest was. And uh, he said, hey, hey, he passed me. He goes, oh, very familiar with your work. And um, he was at... Uh, it was at WWE at the time. So I guess it was a dicky thing for me to say. But I honestly didn't mean it as an insult. He was walking out of the room. I said, nice to meet you. Thank you, Joey. I said, listen, when you're done over there, you know, give us a call. We'll do something together. I basically was wishing his tenure would come to an end. in WWE, But I didn't mean it that way. I meant because, oh, come on, no one's going to no one's going to be there forever. No one's the Brooklyn Brawler. So I just meant, you know, it's all good things come to an end. And, and when it does, you should do something with us. And so then finally it does. And I'm, I'm see, I see Joey. I'm like, come on, are we going to do something? He's like, with you? No way. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I've, I've done all your, everyone you've worked with. He's like, no, I've seen the stuff. No, the dick questions. I said, no, 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 no. That's one series. Once again, it's the one fucking song. I'm a one hit wonder. I'm a Batista's dick hit wonder. It wasn't even my question, fan questions. I said, no, Joey. I said, we have all these other series, man. We even had this cool thing put together for him. It's in the book. It's in one of the books. I think it's in Kayfabe, my first book. Uh, and uh, it just didn't work out, so we didn't get to do anything with Joey. So Joey wasn't a dick to me. Joey was just ill-informed about uh, our market. I don't know what he's doing now, but I wish him luck. Oh, let's see. Uh, John from John's Ramblings on Twitter. How bad did you hurt yourself from rolling your eyes at Greg Gagne's complete bullshit stories? Not to mention that guest booker where he basically had you do the exercise for him. Let me tell you something. I waited for that guy till about 1 in the morning that night. His flight just kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And he was supposed to come out with Vern. This was going to be a historic guest booker. Now, Vern was touch and go health-wise, so we knew there was a chance he couldn't get on the plane. But it was worth taking that chance. If nothing else, we'd have Greg, and then we can talk to Greg about working with Dad as a booker. So, I mean, right up until, if you watched the intro, the intro to that guest booker was shot hours before the flight was even intended to go. As soon as the set was built... I stepped in and we shot it. And if you look at my mouth, I say, in this edition of Guest Booker with the Ganyas. Uh, but you hear, in this edition of Guest Booker with Greg Ganya, because I, I had to dub in the Greg when, when they couldn't come. So up until the flight, we didn't know Vern was going to get on. They had delayed it. There was maybe snow, some kind of bad weather. So hour after hour after hour, and then word came in like around 11 o'clock that uh, it was too late, Vern couldn't get on, and so it was just going to be Greg. And so I was at in Carlstadt, uh, New Jersey, at what is now something called the Executive Suites Hotel. It was, I think back then it was a, uh, Jesus, I don't remember what it was, but in the bar, the honky-tonk man, Ken Patera, tearing up the joint. Screaming about the guys drinking daiquiris, which he kindly referred to as a cunt drink from across the room. Look at him, he's got a cunt drink. He walked into the room, Ken Patera, the loudest, most out-of-control individual you've ever seen in your life. He walked in, 
bags in hand, right out of the cab probably, doesn't even go to the front desk, walks into the bar area, which is loaded with wrestlers and fans and degenerates. Looks across, sees the shoot interview host who he was going to meet for the night, who he was doing a shoot with that night, who happened to be drinking a banana daiquiri. Now, this is a very blue-collar situation going on here, okay? Everyone's got Heinekens and Buds and all that stuff. And he looks across and he sees... And somebody must have said to him, yeah, that's so-and-so. You're working with him tonight. He brought you in. He goes, what, the guy with the cunt drink? He's screaming across the bar. He's got a cunt drink. That's my memory of Ken Patera. Was I answering a question even on that? I was. Oh, Greg. Yeah, so, and then Greg came in. It was, by the time we wrapped, I think it was four in the morning, and I was very aware that I had done a lot of decision-making and booking for the Greg Gagne guest booker. So uh, I was not amused. Ian Roberts, have you been in touch with Jim Ross in the past about doing a show like a timeline? No, I haven't. Uh, of course I would. Uh, Terry Lynn, who do you think spent their money from Casey fastest on drugs? I have an answer for that. It is Jamie Dundee. I bid Jamie Dundee farewell at the hotel door after shooting his rather out-of-control edition of You Shoot. He shook my hand, was driven by his handlers or promoters to the airport, and that night I was able to read he was arrested back home, having gone home, bought a ton of drugs, and got pulled over DWI'd and drugs and all that stuff. So uh, that's going to be my answer. All right, listen. A lot of fun checking in with everybody here, but listen, it can't go on forever. It can't. It has to end. All good things have to end. Listen, this show is brought to you by my patrons. Here's some of them. Alyssa in Chains, Big Dave, Ian Roberts, Chris, Coulter Man, Paul Rogers, Ralph Ramirez, Salvatore Martone, someone called Steak Sauce, Todd Mogul, Tyson Brown. Thank you, guys. That's a handful of the people who have signed up to become patrons. $1.99 a month helps to keep this show on the air. Hope you decide to do it. The show has been a production of Sean Oliver Media, LLC. Copyright 2019 music by the great Kevin McLeod. Licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. We will catch you next time.